the crack of muskets, fire from a line of gray men, tattered and ragged, these little mini balls, fifty caliber, soft lead, fly into a line of just teenagers in their shiny new blue uniforms, shattering bones, ripping jaws, and tearing through internal organs. The issue with Civil War combat is the lack of medical planning and medical science. A mini ball removing entire chunks of legs and arms, ripping off body parts, all leads to horrible amputations and the screams of men just 16, 17, 18 years old, horribly maimed or dying. This is the story of Civil War Hospitals and the woman who put all of her effort to make them at least bearable for these horribly disfigured and destroyed soldiers of the Union Army. This is the story of Marianne Bickerdyke, also known as Mother Bickerdyke. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. Uh, we're going to jump right into episode 7, Marianne Bickerdyke, and how much it absolutely sucks to be injured or maimed in the Civil War. Marianne Bickerdyke was born in 1817 and really had a relatively uneventful life. She married a British immigrant named Robert Bickerdyke, and Robert Bickerdyke was a musical conductor and was really into music and plays. But that wasn't really a profession you could go into. They eventually moved to Galesburg, Illinois, in which he worked as a conductor for a local band, which was unpaid, and did odd jobs around the town in order to help raise his kids with Mary Ann Bickerdyke and his kids from a previous marriage. Marianne Bickerdyke was also a relatively minor, but for a small town, but a big socialite and was into alternative medicines and was one of the first women to graduate from Oberlin College in Ohio. She was really active in her church and really just was an average 1850s woman at the time. When her husband, Robert Bickerdyke, died suddenly, it left Marianne Bickerdyke widowed with children, including two sons who she cared deeply about. Being widowed, she then turned to her passion, which was alternative medicine, proclaiming herself a botanic physician and worked in Galesburg, Illinois. This was her main income for her and her two sons. Really not having a lot of medical training and being a regular 1850s woman, she was making an okay income to survive in Galesburg, Illinois. Illinois in the middle of the 19th century was a very politically divided state. You had the new Republican Party fighting against the Democrat Party for power. And this fight for power is best highlighted with the Stephen Douglas Abraham Lincoln debate for the Senate office. See, they were arguing over different political ideas, and it got fairly heated. Stephen Douglas did end up winning the election, but he ended up having to make a bunch of concessionary remarks about 
slavery and the viewpoints and whatnot that did win Lincoln some political power and clout when helped when they ran for president against each other a few years later. But Illinois was not the only battleground of political debate during this time period. The entire country was uh, wrapped up in the argument over slavery, over the balance of power in the Union, and over which political party would uh, get elected. And this is best illustrated with Bleeding Kansas, where there was conflict between the pro-slavery Missouri uh, bushwhackers going into Kansas trying to make it be a uh, free state during the uh, rise of popular sovereignty as a concept where states could, instead of just being appointed, uh, be voted by the people of that state on whether or not they wanted to be admitted as a free or a slave state. There was fighting in the Senate, quite literally sometimes. There were beatings with a cane over Bleeding Kansas. Everything was just starting to eke towards violence in the country. This is where we need to talk about Illinois' geography. Illinois was flanked by Kentucky and Missouri. Both were slave states, and both, due to fugitive slave laws imposed in the national government to all the states, had some intense racist divides, especially in the southern part of Illinois, which was referred to as Egypt. We need to focus on what is referred to as Egypt, not as the country Egypt. We aren't talking about the pharaohs. We're talking about southern Illinois, which was surrounded by the Mississippi River and the Ohio River. It was a massive floodplain, but also was a strong northern Democrat stronghold that was really pro-slavery. This was Stephen Douglas's major base, and the Democratic Party, which was an old institution all the way back from the Jackson era in the 1810s and 1820s, was really into segregation and keeping freed slaves and fugitive slaves out of Illinois. They had something famous called the Black Law, which anyone of black skin color could not be in the state for 48 hours unless they were personally invited by a free white citizen of Illinois. And this really just kept the fugitive slave issue from really flying into Illinois. It was hard to keep a fugitive slave in Illinois for long periods of time or for a fugitive slave to go and establish a life as a free, normal human being, like normal human rights as we know today would allow without suffering major repercussions that was state-sanctioned by the state of Illinois. As we mentioned in Part 2 of the Battle of the Hampton Roads, the American Civil War was an event that in fact happened. After Lincoln won the election of 1860, uh, a lot of states started to secede because of fears of the federal government banning slavery nationwide. Whether those fears of banning were founded or not based on Abraham Lincoln's own actual political beliefs, the South believed that they would do it, and they uh, that was very important to their economy for obvious reasons because, you know, their entire economy was built on the backs of slave labor, which I don't think is a very healthy way of uh, doing business, but either way, the secession before Abraham Lincoln even took office created a amount of tension in the country that just kind of built and built and built until eventually Lincoln assumed office and then Fort Sumter was shelled shortly after. 
beginning the American Civil War. That's it in a nutshell. This isn't really a beginning of the American Civil War episode. We kind of covered it more in detail in part two if you want to listen to that. But we're just going to move on to the actual Civil War. So at the start of the Civil War, it was really treated as a simple, quick, going to be resolved quickly war. The people of D.C. rode down to go see the first Battle of Bull Run. As the Union Army, they called for troops, and it was 100-day enlistments. It was really not taken seriously from a military perspective. General Winfield Scott, a hero of the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, was in his 60s and in poor health. He was put in charge of the army and was sent down to go fight with new enlisted men boys maybe ages 16 to 18 who were looking for a quick short adventure and it had pretty all right pay for the 1860s that was quickly shattered as the people of dc rode down with the army to go battle at bull run against the newly formed uh, army of northern virginia as they met near dc about 50 or so miles near a town called Manassas on the creek called Bull Run, hence the two different names on two different sides. If you're a Confederate or a Southern sympathizer, you would say Manassas, but we will say Bull Run for the sake of brevity and also the Union forever. It quickly turned into a bloodbath and not a fun little game where you poke each other with sticks. And the people and the aristocrats of D.C. who rode down to go see this great glorious battle where the North would defeat the South in a quick, short, little skirmish turned out to leave a bunch of 16- to 18-year-olds screaming and dying on the battlefields, ripped limbs torn apart by mini balls and musket fire. This was something that really no one was prepared for. The United States hadn't had a war that was in the Northeast, that was close to the center of American population, since the War of 1812. There has been Indian Wars, which are far in the periphery in the uh, new territories that the United States was acquiring up until this point, and there has been the Mexican-American War, which was down all the way on the southern border. So the people of D.C., the people of Baltimore, the people of New York, really weren't alive for war that was on their doorstep and seeing that and seeing the horrific damage that these combat deaths and wounds did was shocking and a lot of these guys died of gangrene or had their limbs amputated and medical science was not up to date it was usually not gentlemanlike and good surgeon etiquette to wash your hands so there were surgeons with bloody hands moving from different patients at one after another after another really not well treated not well sanitized and left a lot of people dying of serious deep infections if not blood loss from amputated limbs as the first year of fighting progressed the union quickly realized that this was not going to be over for very fast and they were in fact going to need long-term recruits and they were probably going to need to professionalize their military as well so the u.s didn't really have that much standing 
military force at the time. Most of those guys were in the border regions, kind of, you know, protecting against Native American attacks or, you know, the Mexican-American War that had just ended or the Canadians, you know, those dreaded Canadian forces. So there wasn't that much of a military tradition as we see it today with large standing armies and, you know, standardized training and it, it was all kind of uh, ad hoc at the time. You just had veterans from the previous war, which was about 20 years ahead before this one, training a bunch of raw recruits, often for like a month or a few weeks at a time. So Civil War kind of changed that as the year progressed. They realized we needed to much better train these guys. We needed longer-term recruits because it was a major conflict. I mean, these battles were killing thousands of people. And the North couldn't only rely on its industrial might to win it because the South did have a lot of fairly well-trained, fairly well-organized troops because most of the military hierarchy that was, you know, West Point grads were from Virginia or other places in the South. So while they didn't have an industrial advantage, they did have a personnel advantage that the North needed to catch ground on. This is where we go back to where I said about Egypt in southern Illinois. There's a place called Cairo, Illinois, which was where the main Union installation for the Illinois troops were, since it was right by Kentucky and Missouri, two border states which hadn't seceded from the Union, but were intense slaveholding states with a lot of southern sympathy. Southern Illinois, as we covered earlier, also had southern sympathy, but most of the new Illinois regiments were going down to Cairo to station and form and fight in skirmishes with the ragtag groups of guerrillas and rebels that were forming in Missouri and Kentucky. Cairo quickly turned into an absolute cesspool of disease and scum and death because Cairo was a small American town on the banks of the Mississippi and the Ohio River where they joined. It wasn't set up to have thousands of men both living, dying, getting diseases, and moving in and out. The area turned quickly into a massive disease swamp full of dead limbs and dying men of disease and sickness and of medical wounds. Most Civil War deaths were from illness, and that was mainly from poor sanitary conditions, and if you were to go to a field hospital, you were just going to get maybe some whiskey and uh, put in with a massive group of people who you can spread disease all throughout. So, a man who was also from Galesburg, Illinois, where our main topic of the story is also living... Dr. Woodward wrote a letter home to the Congressional Church of Galesburg asking for any amount of help whatsoever from the congregation. The congregation heard the letter and was awed by the horrible story of what the conditions were. The congregation was shocked, and the only person who really seemed to step up was this nice old woman of middle age in 1861 who stood up and said, I will do it. And that is Mary Ann Bickerdyke. She quickly went down to Cairo, seeing the horrible conditions and realizing things have to change. She bursted into the scene, quickly cleaning things up and establishing some medical standards and medical sanitation. 
when questioned about what she was doing, she said that her mission was from God to clean up this military camp and make sure that the Union can have safe places for its sick and wounded boys to be. Marianne Bickerdyke was establishing some intense hospital standards for the 1860s and was honestly at the beginning of her time down in Cairo was ridiculed by men. She was looked at as a busybody, annoying middle-aged woman bossing people around and faced mockery and just straight up shunning from the troops and officers alike. But as more and more sporadic battles happened around Cairo, the men, especially the lower enlisted, the men fighting on those lines, began to recognize that Mary Ann Bickerdyke was extremely important because Mary Ann Bickerdyke was one of the few advocates that they had on those surgical tables. She was one of the only advocates who were proclaiming that, hey, you don't have to amputate his limb. You don't have to do that. You, we can go ahead and treat this through herbal medicines. Although herbal medicines have their own issues today, at least it's better than nothing at the time. And Marianne Bickerdyke was trying her best to have a more compassionate healthcare standard for the wounded and sick and dying of the Union Army. And the passions of the men changed completely from disliking Mother Bickerdyke to proclaiming her as Mother Bickerdyke. At these early stages, the first couple of years of the war, Marianne Bickerdyke was mostly serving with military armies commanded by General Ulysses S. Grant and his subordinate William Tecumseh Sherman, who would later become famous you know, Union generals in charge of most of the war effort. But at this point in time, they were mostly just in charge of armies on the western border regions of the war, like around Kentucky, Illinois, you know, where we were talking about. And most of the focus of the war itself was in the east because that's where the battles around Richmond and Washington, D.C. were. You know, we mentioned the Battle of the Hampton Roads in our last series. That was happening around this time. And all these were just drawing attention away from the West. Because, you know, it, it is a lot more important to hold the capital than to hold Kentucky. But there was still fighting going around all the same. Marianne Bickerdyke did eventually turn these generals' opinions around, and they were very impressed with her as the war proceeded which does play in later when they become in charge of the entire military effort. They brought those opinions about her with them up the military ladder as they assumed more and more responsibility and power over the Union war effort. Marianne Bickerdyke's first major involvement in a large-scale battle was at Fort Donelson. Fort Donelson was a strong Confederate fort placed near the Mississippi River that was blocking General Grant from being able to fully mobilize down the Mississippi River and strangle one of the large economic holds, which is the Mississippi River, of the Confederacy and to get rid of any economic movement down that river. Fort Donelson was really fortified. And in early February of 1862, General Grant made a large-scale assault to take Fort Donelson. This led to 
many wounded, as the Civil War would be known to have men dying on the field. But the one person that gave comfort was Marianne Bickerdyke. With hospitals overflowing and people dying, Marianne Bickerdyke went out to be a pastor for the dying, a nurse for the wounded who could survive, and a person to give last rites to those who had fallen on the field taking Fort Donaldson. A cold winter night, Marianne Bickerdyke was wandering the fields looking for men who were still alive, while some orderlies who were a part of the medical corps of the United States Army thought she was a scavenger. They confronted her, asking what she was doing, and Marianne Bickerdyke was showing that she was just simply caring for the boys who were struck down in their prime by a war perpetrated by people who just wanted to keep other humans as chattel slaves. One of the uh, important things that Marianne Bickerdyke recognized during the Battle of Fort Donaldson is there was a lot of dirty rags being used in medical care, and these boys of the Union Army weren't receiving changes of socks, changes of pants, changes of shirts, and they were simply just running in rags, and it was dirty and unsanitary. Marianne Bickerdyke recognized that in order for the army to work, they had to have clean clothes and good, clean rags. So, Marianne Bickerdyke took up the cause of laundry. That might seem stupid, to be completely honest. Uh, To the average listener, you know, obviously laundry is not that important when there's people dying in the field, but... When you need a wound treated and you need, you know, gauze and bandages, they're using old dirty rags or or the shirts off their backs as rags or as pillows, and they were just simply laying in their old dirty Union clothes. They got one issue of uniforms, and they didn't really have anything. So Marianne Bickerdyke knows that it's important for morale and important for health that they have clean, functioning, good uniforms and clean laundry systems. And that was one of the more important parts of her medical treatment is making sure that things were clean because cleanliness was something that was not really important to other Civil War medical doctors and medical treatment. And Marianne Bickerdyke took up the cause of clean sanitary conditions. As Grant was sieging, areas along the Mississippi River, taking that vital supply through line and cutting the Confederacy in half. The last major vestige of Confederate holdout was at Vicksburg, Mississippi. In the siege of Vicksburg, Union forces for months tried to take the city and eventually succeeded, but not without sustaining heavy casualties. An important member of the Confederate Army was killed during this fighting. Douglas the Camel of the 43rd Mississippi Infantry was participating in the siege. He was carrying important supplies, including the regimental band's instruments. He had participated in the Ayuka campaign under General Sterling Price and also in the Battle of Corinth. He was a respected member of the Confederate military, and the Union knew this, so they assigned sharpshooters to take out Confederate military officers, Douglas being one of them. He was shot by Union troops, and this enraged the Confederate soldiers who vowed to avenge him. His death would be avenged when they shot the man who shot Douglas. That man was not named, but 
Bevier, a Confederate sharpshooter, said that I refused to hear his name and was rejoiced to learn that he'd been severely wounded. Another prevailing theory about Douglas's death is that he was uh, killed by the Confederacy to feed starving troops, but this is clearly defamation. Old Douglas has a grave in Vicksburg, Virginia, where he is honored as a fallen Confederate soldier, important to the war effort. And in fact, there's a group in Texas that honors his name and other camels serving in the war, the Texas Camel Corps. Reenactors of the Civil War also respect the camels serving bravely. And although Douglas may have been on the side of slavery, his valor in the face of horrific warfare proves him as a courageous member of the Confederate Army, and in fact, he's the only member of the Confederate Army that this podcast will respect. Douglas the Camel, he deserved better. He was actually a camel, too. Like, it's not a joke. He scared horses. They were terrified of him. He, he caused a stampede on multiple occasions. They couldn't tether him. He, he would escape any ropes that bonded him. Uh, and, yeah, he, he was just a free spirit. General Grant was sieging Vicksburg in order to take the last holdout of the Mississippi River since New Orleans was captured by the United States Navy earlier in the year, and most of the Mississippi has been taken by General Grant before. The one Union woman who stood to make sure that the boys taking Vicksburg to defeat the Confederacy and destroy the evils that was the Confederacy was Marianne Bickerdike. She would so enrage other Union orderlies and medical officers with her constant care about medical safety, sanitation, and caring and being sympathetic to the boys wounded. Although the surgeons were good at their job in the standards of the 1860s, they really had no sympathy and would quickly run to amputate limbs. Marianne Bickerdike advocated hard for them, and the medical corps did not like Marianne Bickerdike and would run during the siege of Vicksburg to Union General, subsordinate to Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, begging him and asking him and just demanding that he enforces military procedure and gets Marianne Bickerdike out of their face and out of the hospitals. William Tecumseh Sherman, just upset at the conditions and knowing that Marianne Bickerdike was going to be a stubborn, hard woman who took care of the Union troops, declared, threw up his hands, yelled, she outranks me, I can't do a thing in the world, to the men who were begging them to get rid of Marianne Bickerdike. Marianne Bickerdike was there to stay and there to take care of the good rank-and-file soldiers of the Union Army. This relation between William Tecumseh Sherman and Marianne Bickerdike would continue as the Siege of Vicksburg ended and Marianne Bickerdike moved on to create a hospital ship during the Battle of Chattanooga and be there for Union troops. William Tecumseh Sherman would even ask for her to be involved in the March to the Sea, where Marianne Bickerdike, wrapped in shoes made of bark and blankets, suffering and carrying the loads of medical supplies and making sure the men were taken care of, 
would participate in the march to the sea and take care of the wounded men of Sherman's army. The United States Sanitary Commission was a private organization established around the time of the Civil War in order to increase sanitary standards and other things to improve the general welfare of hospitals and the quality of those hospitals and the work done. Marion Bickerdike was a nurse for the Sanitary Commission. She helped establish different protocols and stuff, and as we've mentioned, she was generally in favor of improving the standards of hospitals. This was a private organization, not a government effort, though it did have some funding from the government, and this is important for the fact that it actually allowed women to serve in positions. Marianne Bickerdike was not the only woman helping out. She's the one we're highlighting today, but there are other people like uh, Sarah Palmer Young, Mary Livermore, Sarah Edmund, Emma Edmonds, and Bridget Diver, who were all working for the commission during this period of time. I think it's mostly defunct nowadays because we obviously have better medical standards, but the commission was important in helping to establish those standards and popularize them and save quite a few lives during the Civil War. It was inspired by the British Sanitary Commission during the Crimean War, where it was horrifically bloody and deadly, and it just kind of turned a lot of people on to the idea of improving sanitation in medical practices where it wasn't just a, uh, you just cut our legs off. It was a, okay, no, we need to have a procedure about doing this. We need to standardize things. We need to make sure that we're doing things correctly. And Marianne Bickerdike was a large advocate for all of these. As we've gone over, she improved laundry standards. She helped hospitals to uh, improve their general uh, practices and kind of push doctors to not be as headstrong about the way they do things and to teach them that there were better ways despite their uh, inclinations. So when it comes to sanitary commissions, there is another lady named Mary Livermore. She was extremely big in the Northwest Sanitary Commission. And she was friends with Marianne Bickerdike. But when it came to Marianne Bickerdike's washing facilities, Mother Bickerdike had free black men working the system to get clean laundry and clean rags to the hospitals. But a surgeon did not like that there were black men working in the hospital in the laundry facility. So he had the black men removed. Marianne Bickerdike snapped and was upset that these free black men were not allowed to work in our laundry facility and was going to go up to the general in charge of this entire medical facility and demand that they be reinstated. And she was going to bring Mary Livermore along with her. Mary Livermore refused. And although Mary Livermore was an extremely powerful woman, Mary Ann Bickerdike refused to have poor standards for the men and refused to allow people to be discriminated against based off of their race and called Mary Livermore a coward for not going with her to go fight this general and get those black men reinstated into the washing facility. Mary Livermore, because of this pressure, went along with Mary Bickerdike. Mary Ann Bickerdike was someone who could advocate for men in the field and for free black men and for all people to have equality. She was a woman in a man's time bossing men around and creating a better sanitary commission and a better sanitary life for everyone involved in the Union Army.
Marianne Bickerdyke also sponsored a large voluntary donation drive to send livestock and animals down to union men who were running out of food. So the great people of the Northwest Sanitary Commission and people who donated to the Sanitary Commission sent a large train of live animals down to Marianne Bickerdyke's location down in the south, creating a solid good food source for men who were eating hardtack and water. This allowed to stop scurvy and also diversify the diets, and a good, well-fed soldier is a good soldier in the field. And this is what was crucial about Marianne Bickerdyke. Mother Bickerdyke was someone who actually cared about the troops and won the hearts of the men in the field and the generals, like William Tecumseh Sherman. And when it came to the end of the war, Marianne Bickerdyke, for all that she did, there was the grand showing of the armies in D.C. right after Robert E. Lee's surrender and after the assassination of Lincoln. The grand armies of the Republic, first the Army of the Potomac, marching down, led by General Grant, in their finery and their nice pressed blue uniforms, parading down the street. But the next day was William Tecumseh Sherman's army, ragtag and put together with just straight normal battle styles, no gleaming bayonets, no parade uniforms, showed the people what the Civil War really looked like. But those men were happy and well taken care of because at the front of the army was not William Tecumseh Sherman, but Mary Ann Bickerdyke, a woman who took the world and made it her own and giving a little bit of peace and comfort to men in the field of a very bloody war that would kill 600,000 Americans. She was a hero and deserves to be recognized as such. And you need to know, when you talk about the heroes of the war, William Tecumseh Sherman, General Grant, and Abraham Lincoln, do not forget that there were heroes in the field, just like the men who stood in those lines and fired those shots, but also the woman that cared for them, Mary Ann Bickerdyke. The Civil War has many stories that are forgotten or less heard, and you really need to move and look past the glories of generals and look at the people who really cared for their troops and, and their last dying needs. Because you can imagine being a young man dying in the field and you aren't thinking about William Tecumseh Sherman, but you are thinking about the last days of your life. And the comfort that could come from a good woman like Mother Bickerdyke would stand in your last moments as a good time and a good moment in all of the pain and bad that come with the war. This is the story of Mary Ann Bickerdyke. We thank you for listening and go ahead and tune in next week for another episode of the Cleocast. Thank you. <laughs>